I'll invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And uh, we'll be covering through to verse 27 today. Good. Is this Kelly? Can you turn that on? You better? All right. So, Luke chapter 19, if you can't hear me, uh, verse 11. And just as we turn there, before we begin reading, I just want to have us consider a question, have you consider a question. The question is, what do you expect the Christian life to look like? What do you expect the life of a Christian should look like? So just as you're thinking about that, just hold on to your answer. Let's, let's read this together. The word of the Lord, Luke 19, 11, says this. As they heard these things, he, of course it's Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten mines. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten mines. I tell you that everyone who has, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, there's much in this parable. But as Luke so often does, which is good, helpful, he gives us context. Uh, he gives us the reason why Jesus spoke this parable, which helps us to interpret this, helps us know what's going on here. And he gives this reason to us in verse 11. So if you'll recall, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's getting close. He was in Jericho. We saw this last week. The Zacchaeus story that took place in the city of Jericho, 17 miles east of Jerusalem. Now going to begin the ascent up towards Jerusalem. He's getting closer. We know that at Jerusalem is where his, his earthly ministry will climax. He has said as much numerous times. And Luke has relayed that to us. Luke has been preparing us, the reader, for the fact that things will climax in Jerusalem. Jesus has made this clear to his disciples as well. And in verse 11, we're told that he then spoke this parable and we're given two reasons for it. And I think the two reasons are really one. They're closely related, but, but he gives us two reasons. It says he proceeded to tell a parable because, so this is reason one, they were near to Jerusalem, and because, reason two, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the disciples know that when they get to Jerusalem, something's going to happen. They know that things are about to climax uh, this, this, things are going to reach its peak here as we get to Jerusalem, and they're close to Jerusalem. So this is happening very soon. So expectation is high. And so that, that, that first phrase, they're near Jerusalem, they know it's about to happen, and then the second reason tells us what they think will happen. They t tells us what they understand the climax to be. Namely, they think that the kingdom of God will appear immediately. 
when they get to Jerusalem, the climax is the Lord Jesus will be enthroned in glory, and they will be there with him as his disciples. This is their expectation. They're anticipating the full manifestation of his messianic kingdom. They expect uh, him to be conquering, and they expect then to reign with him, to rule with the Lord Jesus, with the Christ, with the Messiah. And of course, we've been seeing in a number of places throughout Luke that Jesus has been saying, this is not what's going to happen. Uh, that this is not what's going to be the climax of his earthly ministry uh, when they get to Jerusalem. In fact, just a few, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw in chapter 18, verse 31 to 35, Jesus told them explicitly that when they got to Jerusalem, he was going to be very poorly treated, and in fact, he would suffer, and he would actually be handed over and die. And so he, 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 this is very much, this is the opposite of, you know, this glorious uh, manifestation of the kingdom. He's going to kick out all his enemies. It's going to appear as though his enemies will triumph over him. And yet we know back from verse 34, 34 I should say, that... Uh, that they did not understand this. The disciples did not grasp this. They did not see how his suffering and death and these predictions could fit their grasp of what the Messiah would, would be and what he would do. And so they're still thinking, they still think that they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be enthroned, and they'll be with him. The expectation was of immediate glory as they draw near to Jerusalem. And this expectation... That being a disciple of Christ means that we will have lives of greatness, that we will have lives of impact, lives of health. We will live lives that will leave behind a great legacy and that we will have lives that will be respected by everybody around us, that will perhaps result in wealth and great things and health, that this, this will be life at the top in this age, this lifetime expectation of glory in this life remains very common for people. It remains very common. This expectation that everything should go well and go smoothly. Sometimes it takes the form of a very uh, wicked system of false teaching and false doctrine. You know, we think of the prosperity gospel that teaches that believers in Christ, it's God's will for you always to be healthy and always to have lots and lots of money. Sometimes it, 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 takes a, it takes on that kind of a, a full system of, of false doctrine. But this expectation of glory immediately can also be found in more subtle ways. Uh, and it can even be found amongst genuine believers who are misled. It happens when, it often happens when somebody might read a something in the Bible, and before they've really come to understand what the Bible's saying about this subject, they import, you know, unbiblical views of it into the Scriptures. So, um, for example, a person might hear uh, biblical teaching that God is for Christians. This idea that if, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now right with God and a right standing with Him, and He is for you. Of course, that's true. That's a biblical thing. But somebody might from there draw some unbiblical applications from that or some unbiblical implications for that. So they might, for example, think that, well, if God is for me, then everything's going to work out great. Everything should be pretty easy. After all, God owns all things. True statement. After all, God is the creator of all things. That's also a true statement. And so somebody might say, if he's for me, then clearly things are going to start falling into my lap. Things are going to start working out. He's going to arrange all things so that my life just is a steady climb up the ladder and everything's going to be great and fine. And of course, that might seem plausible again. God is the creator after all. He owns all things. He's for you. You're good with him. He's going to just empty out the treasures into your lap. That might seem plausible, but this is an expectation of glory now that the Bible does not teach. It does not promise. For God to be for us does not mean that we will not encounter trials. 
does not mean that we will not encounter sickness or pain or heartache or difficulty in this life. The Bible makes that very clear. We've seen this in a number of places as we've gone through Luke. So again, there's, there's, it's very common to think that I'm clo- you know, if, if I'm right with God now, I'm close with Him now, I'm united with Christ, then you know, I'll, this manifests itself in other ways. Then some people think I should feel constantly very close to Him. I should you know, be living on the mountaintop all the time. I should know nothing but continual wonderful victory and happiness and ease and the greatest of joys. This should really be my experience after all. I'm good and right with God. This is just various forms of this idea that this life now is just one to be one of glory for us. And we've seen this expectation being combated over and over and over again in the book of Luke by the Lord Jesus. He's continually having to remind his disciples of this. He said to them, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. That was back in chapter 12, and he goes on to to say that there would even be division within homes on account of Christ. And that would clearly be very difficult. He also said, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing the cross is a very different image than just glory and victory and just pure, sheer happiness. So Jesus has continually been reminding his disciples of this, and and we need to hear this correction over and over, because for various reasons, we tend to slide towards this expectation that the Christian life should be easy. That God should just make everything really smooth for us. That life should just be a straight shot to the top. And so once again here, our Lord, He knows that this expectation is high and it's building in these people. And He teaches, He instructs them in His love, in His mercy, in His kindness to His disciples. And by extension to us, He instructs us correcting This inflated expectation of immediate glory. And think of what a a kindness this is. If this is your expectation, and these disciples are about to, we're so close to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. And they think everything, they're just going to reign here with the Lord Jesus in in a short time. And in fact, it's nearly the opposite. The Lord Jesus is crucified. They're thrown into a panic. Think of how difficult this would have been for them to endure when their expectation was so out of line. And so all these instructions would serve these disciples when they're waiting those days that Jesus is in the tomb before he rises. And then even after he rises, and the Holy Spirit would clarify and help them understand all these things that Jesus taught. So this is a great kindness to correct this expectation and help his disciples So, when the temptation for immediate glory comes, number one in our outline, remember that the kingdom will come in full glory later. When we feel the temptation for immediate glory, remember the kingdom will come in full glory later. This is so important for us to remind ourselves of, to get a grasp of. Uh, It's not that there is no glory at all. It's not as if there's no crown for the believer. It's just that all of this comes later on when Christ returns, when he comes in full glory, in his full glory, to usher in his consummated kingdom. And so he teaches us this here. He begins in verse 12. So we've seen in verse 11 why he's telling us this parable. And then in verse 12 he says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So the imagery of a nobleman who's going off to receive a kingdom is the idea of uh, the picture of receiving the right to rule from another king, from a, perhaps a greater king. Uh, so he's, he's going off to receive the right to then rule the land from which he was leaving. So he's going to return and rule the land that he left. And this was a pretty common thing in Jesus' day, a pretty common practice. Uh, Kings like Herod, you think of King Herod, Herod Antipas, he had to receive his rule, his right to reign over the region of Galilee from the Romans. 
So it was quite a common practice. You have to get that authority from elsewhere, a far off land, country, and then come back and then they would, they would rule this, this land. So this is a, 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 a common thing in Jesus' day. So the nobleman in this parable quite clearly represents Jesus. Uh, in this picture of him going away to receive a kingdom is referring to his ascension into heaven where he would go after his resurrection, obviously his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He would go to the Father's right hand where the Father tells him to sit there until the time when his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet, which would be the time in which he would return. He would return to consummate his, his kingdom and to bring about judgment of his enemies, which we'll see more of even in this parable. Jesus has already made clear that this is what's going to happen. If you remember back in chapter 17, particularly verses 20 and following, uh, he says there, first of all, he says that the kingdom of God is not coming in a visible way. Uh, they should not expect that now. But rather, he says, the kingdom is already amongst you. Back in 17, 20, and 21. He's saying that, that and we'll be talking about this back then, that the kingdom is here now, but it's not in a visible sense. You can't point to borders and walls and say that's the kingdom as we do other earthly kingdoms. Rather, he's saying that it's here in the sense that people enter into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. They're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, into the Lord's kingdom. So it's here. People enter it by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's here in that sense. And yet he goes on there to say that there's coming a day when they would long for the day of the Son of Man and yet they would not see it. That he would be gone and the day of the Son of Man would not yet come. And he was teaching there, if you recall when we went over that then, that there would be a day he would return. It would be a visible day, a glorious return of Christ. He would come in his full glory. People would see him for exactly who he is. And he would bring about the full uh, measure of his kingdom at that time. And so this is where we get this idea that the kingdom is here now, uh, but it's not yet here in its full glory. And this, is, this, this, this full glory aspect of the kingdom of God is what is being discussed here in this parable. Jesus is like a nobleman who's gone away. He's received the authority to rule, to reign, and he will return one day to execute that rule. So again, Jesus is further preparing his disciples here as they would one day soon feel this letdown and this confusion when all of this expectation is not met. Uh, he's reminding them, he teaches as they recall this instruction, they would remember that the Lord said he would be returning. To he, he would go away, sorry, first to receive that right to rule and he would return. And so even now, Christ is at the Father's right hand. He has been exalted. He has the name above every name. And one day he will return, and his return will light up the skies. It will be evident for all to see, as we saw back in chapter 17. So again, it is not as if there is no judgment at all for the Lord's enemies. It's just that it comes later. It's not as if there's not a full, complete, and perfect rest for the Lord's people. It's just that it comes later. It's not now. It's not as if the Lord will not reign forever in a visible manner with enemies under his feet and that we won't join him. It's, that will happen. It's just that it will happen later. Again, it's not as if we won't be, if we are trusting in Christ Jesus, it's not that we won't be with him. To even as Revelation 22.5 says, to reign with him forever, we will be. It's just not yet. And these are truths we need to build ourselves up in. To believe this, to see this with eyes of faith and to place our hope in this. We must understand that now is not the time for this glory. We're not promised this now. In this life, we are called to bear our crosses. We're told that it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It is the cross before the crown. As it was for Jesus, when he came the first time, he bore the cross. Before he was raised, before he received his exaltation, before he would return in glory. It was the way for the apostles, as they would come to find out, and as they would come to live out. 
They suffered much. Through many tribulations and trials, they entered the kingdom of God. It is the way for all Christians. Now, it's true that there are many joys to be had. Uh, you think of the fruit of the Spirit. There is joy, there is peace, patience, kindness, and so on. We're called to rejoice at all times. It is not that there is no joy whatsoever, that this whole life is just simply one of complete misery. We see that even as we do face trials, we are still called to live lives of rejoicing and that it's possible. We see this in the book of Acts. We see the early disciples, apostles, counting it, rejoicing as they count themselves as they were being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, as they were hauled before the Sanhedrin councils, the rejoicing even in the midst of their suffering. So there is joy to be had, but it's it's the kind of it's it's the kind of joy and victory that's very different than what we would typically think of it as. It's not this sort of uh, glory now type of, of joy. It's not a, a happiness that comes with just everything working out really good and always feeling really great about everything that happens. It's quite different. Luther called this a theology of the cross. That, that Jesus, he was victorious, but not in the way we expect it, not in the way his disciples expected. He was victorious over sin, but he's victorious through death. So we are free as Christians. If we're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are free, but, we, but we're free through being slaves to Christ. We're laying up treasures in heaven while detaching our hearts from lusting after the treasures of this earth. We are counting the reproach of Christ that is laid upon us, hatred and despising for the sake of Christ, laid upon us as greater wealth than all the riches of the world, all the riches that kings could give. And there's a tremendous joy in this, a tremendous peace in this, but it's not the kind of joy that the world knows anything about. It's not synonymous with just happiness because everything panned out really nicely. Uh, to receive the reproach of Christ is to really be despised by people. And there are times that does not feel good. We don't go happy, you know, it's not just happiness because somebody despises us. But there's a deeper joy knowing that we are suffering on account of Christ. It's not this glory now, everything just is, is great and there's no opposition or difficulty. It's a different type of joy. There's a real joy, there's a real delight to be had in this life of the sort the world can know nothing about. And it is antithetical to how we would naturally think of these things. We would naturally think of happiness as just having everything easy. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And we can't import that into what the Bible says, even as we're called to rejoice. And so we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. I think... As you look at our world, you can see it's not cool to, to believe the Bible. And increasingly, it gets more and more difficult to believe the Bible. There was a time when you could go to a church that would affirm what the Bible believes is true, and it might give you some sort of social credibility in your community. But now, it's quite the opposite, increasingly so. If you go to a church that actually believes this Bible, it is very much a mark against you. And if we expect, if our expectation is such that being a Christian means everything's easy and people love us and this is going to be an easy life or everything's going to be great, we will be crushed when that is not the case. Or we will simply compromise and give up all of this to retain favor with man. And so we need to remember that now is the time for cross-bearing and that glory will come, but it is a future thing. It is something that comes when Christ returns. It's a deferred glory. As Christ said elsewhere, he who exalts himself now will be humbled, and he who humbles himself now will be exalted on that day. So let us align our expectation with what Christ teaches us here.
Secondly, when the desire for immediate glory comes, remember that servants are to engage in the king's business now. Servants are to engage in the king's business now. So glory is for later. We must put off expectation of it for later. And now we're to put on the mindset of servants who have work to do. Our king has given us work to be done. So look at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. The servants of the parable, these would be representing the Lord's disciples, any who follow after him. Uh, I do think there's two types of servants in this parable, but we'll get into that more in just a moment. We can view this as professing believers. And what Jesus is saying is that now is the time to engage in business, as he puts it. Now is not the time to rule in glory. Now is the time to get to work. So during this time between Christ's two departures, during his ascension now, in which he's at the Father's right hand, uh, this is a time in which he's given his church some marching orders, some things to do. These are not works to save ourselves. These are not works to, uh, you know, overcome our sin or whatever. This is for those trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was saved by his grace through faith. And he says, as my church, as my people, engage in business now. And this work, this business is described in this parable as managing money. It's likened to managing money. So a mina, this was a Greek monetary unit that was worth about three months wages. That's your ESV footnote. We'll give you that. And we're told that faithful business in the parable is seen in the servants who invested the money and brought it back to the king, having multiplied it. And so the question, of course, is what is this a picture of? Uh, what Christian business is this pointing to? So a lot of people will be quick to point to the fact that this is spiritual gifts, and certainly that's part of it, um, but I would argue it's right to view this a little more broadly as a reference to faithfully using everything that God has given us in service to our Master. All that we are, our very lives, everything we've been given, to be poured out in service to Him. To be used to engage in the business of our, of our God. So, for example, our jobs, our employment. This is not just about earning a paycheck, somehow divorced from the Christian life or our faith. We've talked about this before. But rather, our work is a way of serving our God. Serving Him well. It's a way of loving our neighbors, benefiting our neighbors contributing to society through our, our service or whatever it is we're doing for work, creating the best product or service that we possibly can to honor our God and to love our neighbor and to serve them well. Work itself is a good thing. We've talked about this before. In our marriages, it's being a husband or a wife now according to God's design and His plan to steward our marriage well for the Lord's sake. Similarly with our kids, they're gifts to us from the Lord that we might steward them well to His glory and to His honor. And the list continues. Of course, our finances, our goods and possessions. And then obviously as well, certainly, our gifts, our gifts to be used, Ephesians 4 talks about, for the building up of the body, for building one another up in our church. And if we think of this, to this, uh, this uh, you know, Jesus says to engage in business for his servants, if we think of this collectively as a church, we think of what we've been given to steward, we've been given the very word of God itself, to carefully pour over it, to carefully try to understand it, to carefully try to submit our understandings and our very lives to what God in His Word tells us. To proclaim that Word here. And then to take the Gospel message that, would, that saves people, by which lost sinners are saved, to then take that message even beyond these walls to our neighbors, to wherever we might find them, to, again, as we've talked about, to, to give our money to support missionaries who, 
give themselves to that task all the time. To ourselves, take every opportunity we can to share this message with others. To use whatever gifts we have to build one another up in the faith, encouraging one another, helping one another, teaching each other, teaching our children, leading music, praying for one another, showing mercy to each other, helping each other in any way possible, building each other up to the glory of God, that we might grow together as a body in our maturity and our love for the Lord. This life is not about just immediate glory. Rather, we have business to be about. There's work to be done. Again, this is not work to save ourselves. This is work in praise to God as those who've been graciously pardoned by the Lord Jesus. This is the king's word on the matter. He's gone, but he's left us with instructions. There's work to be done. And so let us give ourselves fully to his cause. Whether the sun is shining brightly on you right now or whether you're walking through a dark valley, there's, there's work to be done. There's business to engage ourselves in. Thirdly, when the desire for immediate glory comes, remember that when the Lord comes, all people will be called to give an account. When the Lord comes, all people will be called to give an account. This reality is quite clear in this parable, and it helps us see and understand that this life now, the here and now, matters. Salvation is much more than just a, it's not just a get out of hell free card that lets us then simply go on doing whatever we want in this life, living for ourselves, uh, knowing that we have this card we can flash when we stand before the Lord, and, uh, and then we'll be pardoned, and then we get glory at that time. Uh, this is a common misunderstanding that persists today, and you run into it all the time, I'm sure. And this parable, once again, blows that understanding up too. So as we, as we uh, continue in this parable, it's helpful to note there's three categories of people in this parable. Three different types of people who are called to account. Um, so far in verse 13, we've, we've been told of servants, and we'll see in a moment, I think this category is divided into two types of people. And I'll explain that in a moment. Um, but in verse 14, the third group is mentioned. Read that with me. It says, but his citizens, so the, this nobleman's gone off to receive his kingdom, his right to rule. But his, nobleman, or but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So this other category of people are introduced here, those who hate him and do not want him to rule over them. Commentators are quick to point out that this is precisely what happened in the history of Israel when Herod the Great died and there was confusion about his will and who was to rule after him. There was one of his sons named Archelaus was... To rule, he was appointed to rule over them, over the Jews, over the region of Judea and, and, and some, some outlying region. He was one of the rulers to succeed to succeed, succeed uh, Herod the Great. And uh, he did rule, and he was brutal. He was brutal at it. And the Jews actually, with the Samaritans whom they hate, despise Archelaus so much, they actually sent a joint delegation to Rome, uh, to the emperor, to, August, to Caesar, to, uh, to, to, tr to tell him, we do not want this man to rule over us. And in fact, Archelaus was deposed, he was removed, and that's why instead of a king like Herod in Galilee, we end up seeing in the Gospels this man, Pontius Pilate. He was a, a Roman official, a Roman governor. Instead of a king, they just appoint, they depose Archelaus, and Augustus appoints a governor to rule this area of Judea. And so this scenario, Jesus says, they send a delegation, we don't want this man to reign over us, was actually something that everyone would have been quite familiar with because they actually pulled this off. They did this. And so in the context, this seems pretty clearly to picture the Jewish people, but I would say particularly their leaders who were in constant opposition to Jesus. But of course, 
It's not merely Jews who fit this category. There are many in the world who hear of Christ, refuse his kingship, hate him, and want nothing to do with him. So we'll come back to this group in a moment, but uh, in verse 15, we're told there the king returns. He's gone away. He's received the kingdom. He returns, and he gathers the people for an accounting. What have you done since I have been gone? And I mentioned there's three categories of people. I think this begins to become clear here. The first group are the good or the faithful servants. There are two of these servants mentioned in the parable. The first, we're told, turned his mina into ten more minas, he says. And the response comes from the nobleman, who's again representing Jesus. Well done, good servant. Because you are faithful in very little, you will have authority over ten cities. So this picture is of a very gracious reward for faithfulness. Really above and beyond what was, you know, what was um, expected or what was warranted for what had been done. He turned these, this mine into ten more, uh, but he says he'd been faithful in a very little, and then he gives him ten cities to rule over. It's a, it's a significant um, um, kindness that this king is showing. And this reward is in the form of responsibility and rule in the kingdom. That's the picture in the parable. And obviously, the question again, how far do we press this language when we draw conclusions about life for the, the faithful believer in the consummated kingdom of God? We've discussed this again in other places, but it seems to me clearest and, and, and the best way to understand this is that in the new heavens and new earth, believers, those who prove to be true servants, will exercise a measure of dominion over the new earth in perfect communion with God. Again, as Revelation 22, I think, depicts in verse 5 especially, that they, the Lamb's servants, will reign forever and ever. The Bible pictures this with this stewardship language. We're put over possessions. We're entrusted with much. And here, put over cities, it says. And so it seems the Lord will place His redeemed people over all that is His. And we will, there will be work to do, but it will be good work. It will be work that is free from the curse. Enjoyable work. Uh, it's what Adam lost and, and in the garden will be restored and made even greater and more grand. Again, Adam was told to work the land in the garden before the fall. It was good. It was easy. There were no thorns at that time. It was enjoyable. It will be like that, only greater in the new heavens and new earth. What exactly this will look like for each person, I don't think is clear. And again, there's debate about how far do we press this language and imagery but I think the general picture is clear. That the Bible's presentation of life in the consummated city for believers who will be resurrected with imperishable bodies involves the reward of stewarding what is the Lord's without any curse upon us. And, it, and I would also add, I think it seems clear from this second servant that not everyone will receive the exact same role or the exact same reward. This whole issue of rewards, it's, it's debated. Sometimes it it's, can upset people or disturb people, especially when we think of the fact that salvation is completely of God's grace through no working of our own. But I would just say that, that what's being depicted here, it's not... It's not the person who works hard enough gets entrance into the kingdom of God. That is clearly of grace. The Bible is very clear on that. I would also just add that these rewards here are also a gift of God's grace. A generosity in His grace. God saves in His grace and all believers equally receive eternal life in the kingdom of God. And yet also God rewards His servants for the work they do. When he has saved them, brought them into his kingdom, and they work on this earth now. And this is also reward that comes from his gracious kindness. And so in a, in a real way, we might say, Herman Babing says it this way, that 
In many ways, it's God crowning his own labor, even as he empowers us and, and strengthens us to do the work that we do upon this earth. So the bottom line here in what's being said is that this is assuring us that our investment in God's kingdom, the, the, the labor we take up as we serve God here on earth during this time, it is not in vain. This is, I think, the bottom line. That when the Lord comes, He will call His servants together and He will graciously pour out rewards for those who've served Him. It's a reminder that even if we face trial, even though we will face difficulty, even though there is a, a persecution that will come our way to varying degrees, He's saying here, your labor is not in vain. In His grace, God will reward His servants. And so this ought to encourage us to continue to press on, to continue to press on in our business, our work for the Lord, whatever may come, knowing again that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. The second category of people is found in verse 20. This person is called another person or the other person. Uh, this is a servant, another servant, who knew what was to be done. He was given a mina, but yet failed to engage in business. He gives his reasonings in verse 21, namely that he was afraid of the nobleman. And so he just hid this away in a, in a, in a handkerchief, like a bandana. In verse 22, the nobleman responds that if he, if he knew that he was so harsh, if this is really what he's like, then he really should have invested the money and just done the minimum, stick it in the bank and at least collect some interest. So, so, so he's condemning it with his own words. If I'm really this awful person you think I am and so harsh and brutal, why wouldn't you, then you should have at least done this. You should know that things would not go well for you if, you show, if I come back and you've done absolutely nothing. So either this servant doesn't really know his master, he thinks he's harsh, and brutal, when clearly his treatment of the previous servants seems to suggest a great generosity towards his servants. So either he doesn't know his master or he's simply making an excuse. Excuse, But the end result is that what he has is taken from him, we're told given to the ones who were faithful. But nothing more is said of this man here but in, in Matthew 25, we have a similar parable. I do think it's a different parable told on a different occasion. But it's very similar. The parable of the talents, you're familiar with that. In that case, the same, very similar situation. The servant who's unfaithful, who doesn't do anything with what he's given. There we're told that this servant was cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So very clearly, this is, this is a reference to hell. It's a judgment. And so I think it's best to understand this servant here in Luke 19 as representing those who profess faith in Christ, but who are never really born again. They are people who know what the Lord expects of them. They've heard it. They understand it. They claim to be his servants, but they nevertheless refuse to engage in the Lord's business. Thus they prove, as James says, that their faith was dead because it never resulted in fruit. It never resulted in works, namely, serving the Lord and His kingdom. And this will be exposed at the Lord's coming. Such a person is not saved, and even what they seem to have will be removed. Judgment will come upon them. Again, I think it's just another way of saying, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, that many... There will be many who say, Lord, Lord, and yet who never enter the kingdom of God. There are some who profess to follow Christ, but do not produce fruit. And this is not always obvious to human eyes who fits this category, but the fact is, the Lord will not be fooled. We cannot escape His all-penetrating gaze. And this is a warning it's a warning against people who would try this, who would want perhaps the benefits of eternal life, who would want the future glory, but have no interest in the work of the Lord now, have no interest in the business of the Lord now. We cannot fool God. 
We may fool one another even. Think of Simon the magician in Acts. He fooled Philip. He fooled many for a time before he was exposed when Peter came along. But ultimately, we cannot fool the Lord. And if that's you, you claim to be a believer, you perhaps want and like the idea of eternal life, but you have no desire to engage in the work of the Lord now, no desire for the things of God now, then this calls you to repent of this, to turn from, repent of your flippant approach to the Lord, where you would receive some of what he says, but then put, you know, reject the other things he says, like what he calls you to during your life now. The final category, the third category, is this group who sent delegates trying to refuse this noble's, nobleman's appointment as king. They hate, they hate him, as we saw. And the nobleman now says, this, this, this man who has returned, he's now the king, he says, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are the types of words that Jesus says that don't get a lot of airtime. If you ask people what is Christ like, this kind of a saying for most people would not fit that category. And yet here he is saying this. In the parable, these are enemies who have committed treason against the king. And the reality is rejection and opposition to Christ. In our day, though it's often dismissed as no big deal, for many it's the logical thing to do in our world without much consideration at all. And yet it's tantamount to cosmic treason. This is the one who will come back to rule all things. And so when he comes... He will bring judgment. He will bring judgment for those who hate him and refuse him and do not want his kingship. All sinners who die in their sin will be called to account before the Lord Jesus and will be judged for their sin. And this rejection of Christ is one manifestation, obviously a significant element of, some, of such sin. And this will be laid against them. And of course, this highlights the importance of repenting of our sin. Our need for forgiveness. Every person would fit this category naturally as we are born into this world at enmity with God. It is also a reminder of the importance of what it is that we've been given as a church and as Christian people to steward, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the Lord tells us in his word is the power of God unto salvation. There is a salvation that saves from this destruction, from this slaughtering, to use Jesus' words. And this, the salvation is found in Christ alone, who as we see was on his way to Jerusalem, to purchase this salvation. Where he is the son of God in human form. Would take upon himself the sins of all of his people. All who would believe in him. So that all who do turn from their sin. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would be forgiven. Their sin completely paid for by Christ. His perfect righteousness credited to the account of anyone and everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus. There is salvation in his name. And so again, I ask you, what do you expect the Christian life to be like? Again, we find Jesus correcting this false notion that persists, this stubborn notion that it means immediate glory and greatness for us. Christ coming in glory and the exaltation of his redeemed people, it's a future event. And in the meantime, we've been given work to be done, labor to be done. And this is work that characterizes all of those who are justified by God's grace through faith. 
And the importance of all of this is magnified in the fact that we will appear before the Lord's tribunal and we will give accounts. And if somebody is found there to have totally neglected and had no interest in the things of the Lord during this lifetime, it's clear here what will become of such a person. Faith without works is dead. And Christ will expose that. Glory will be a future reality. We now have work to be done. No matter what comes our way, it is worth continuing on in perseverance to serve the Lord all of our days. May we arm ourselves with right thinking on this matter. and May we be about the Lord's business even as we await His glorious return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this word that corrects us and prepares us. Father, I pray that we would not be surprised when fiery trials come, as though something strange were happening to us. Father, we know that all of all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We know that we are not immune suffering. We know that you discipline those you love and that our suffering even you use and bring to us that you might sanctify us through it. Father, your ways are so far above our ways. We can't possibly grasp it all. But we trust that what your word says is true, that you are good and that you are loving in, in, all, in, in and through all of this. Father, convince us of this. I pray that you'd convince us of the truth that your son is going to return and that we would live in light of that day and that we would happily be about our king's business in our homes, with our families, at our workplaces, that we would gladly bring all that we own before your feet to use as wisely as we can to serve your purposes. Father, make this our joy. I pray that you would give us true joy. That even as difficulty comes and even as there's uncertainties about what this life in our world will look like in years ahead, may we be so confident in the truth of your word and may we be overjoyed knowing that whatever man may try to do to us, whatever suffering may come our way, we are right with you by faith in your son. We thank you that he came to purchase redemption that that was the climax of his earthly ministry, his death and resurrection. And Father, we acknowledge and declare that your ways are great. We praise you. I pray that you would encourage your people as we continue to worship together, as we fellowship together, and as we go on from this place to our weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.